Welcome to another, Salvation by Grace, midweek message. Salvation by Grace, is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship, in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently working our way, through the book of Isaiah. So, open your Bible, and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. You can turn to Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19 does not spell out any specific theology. Instead, it is just an oracle, a prophecy against Egypt, very similar to what we saw in the prophecy against Damascus and against the Moabites and against the Ethiopians, those of Cush. We're going to now see a similar prophecy against Egypt, and yet there are all of these theological implications that are worth paying attention to. Like, for instance, these nations that Isaiah is currently prophesying against are Gentile nations, meaning that they have not had the benefit of God's revelation of himself the way that the Israelites have had. The Israelites and the Jews have had the law. They've had the prophets. They have the promises. They have the covenants. They have the revelation of God, making them particularly guilty because they have turned their back on God despite his revelation of himself to them. But these are Gentile nations. These are not people who have had the benefits that the Jews have had. These are not people who have had the revelation of God or the interaction of God in their life. And yet, God holds them guilty for the fact that they are worshiping other gods than him. They are worshiping their own idols. They have constructed their own religion. And they have then engaged in the worship of stone and wood and metals and handmade gods, and God holds them guilty and punishes them even though he has not yet revealed himself to them. Part of what we're going to see in this oracle to Egypt is that God is going to reveal himself to them. But when we think about God revealing himself, usually we think about it in positive terms. We think, well, if God was going to reveal himself to the people of Smyrna, Tennessee today, he would do it by some positive miracle. He would do it by something so great that we'd say, that was wonderful, that was miraculous, that could only be God. It's usually the way people talk about miracles, when they see something very positive happened. Oh, my child recovered from a life-threatening illness, or I was driving and I fell asleep and I should have gotten hit by that train and I didn't and God was watching out for me. Jesus, take the wheel. You know, he was really looking out for me. So that's a positive way that God reveals himself. In chapter 19, God is going to bring about misery to Egypt. He's going to bring about a drought that is even going to cause the economy of Egypt to completely tank. And he's going to bring down a foreign king on them who's going to rout them completely 
And then he's going to say, and when I do all that, you're going to know that I am God. So part of how God reveals himself is through trouble, through trials, through difficulties, through judgments. I have oftentimes observed through the years of doing this that it's hard to get people's attention and turn them toward the things of God when they're happy, when they're comfortable, when everything's going their way. I forget who said it, but I always like the quote, I never learned anything really important when I was comfortable. And that's just a fact, because we're not really paying attention when the wolf is away from the door, and it's all rainbows and bluebirds and kumbaya, and everything's going our way. That's not when we're paying attention. But when things terrible happen, when God throws something awful on us, we get on our knees. We go back to God. We start crying out to God because we recognize that he is the only one who can deliver us. God knows that. He has a long, rich history of dealing with nations in exactly that way, where he is revealing himself through the trouble that he puts them through so that any other God, any other idol, anything else that they turn to to deliver them simply cannot deliver them from the hand of judgment of the only God who is. Therefore, they're going to have to turn to God, recognize him as God, worship him as God, because that's the only way they're going to be delivered from the trouble that God alone is bringing. When God brings trouble into our lives, we have a tendency to look to everything else first. You know, maybe modern medicine, maybe modern chemistry, Maybe I can just straighten up and fly right. Maybe I can work harder. Maybe I can repair that relationship. Maybe some herbal things will take care of that disease. Maybe we try everything. And when we get to the end of our rope, we finally cry out to God. Well, that's essentially what God is doing here. He is taking nations to the end of their rope and then explaining that the reason he did it was so that they would know that he was God. Now, also in chapter 19, we're going to see the same pattern that we have seen a couple times that I keep pointing out over and over, that Isaiah sees these prophetic events out in the future, but he sees them all as part and parcel of one large event, even though they jump over periods of time. The beginning of this prophecy against Egypt, we can pretty much trace it. We can say, okay, this is probably... And I'll tell you now, chapter 19 is probably about the Assyrian incursion against Egypt, especially when you look at the cities that fall in particular. That was Assyria's doing. But then if we get a chance tonight, we're going to look at a parallel passage from Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is going to add to it that it's not only the Assyrians that are going to do this to Egypt, but then God is also going to send Nebuchadnezzar sort of mop up the floor after the damage that the Assyrians have done. So the Egyptians are just going to keep getting pounded. But on top of that, God's also going to bring drought, things that no human being can take responsibility for. He's going to dry up the River Nile. He's going to crash their economy. He's going to do the things that no human king could actually accomplish so that they will see that this is a supernatural event that they are going through, so that they will recognize that it is 
at least a God that is doing it to them so that they will rush to their gods and their gods will be powerless to help them and so they will recognize that the God of Judah is the God who must be doing it. And as a consequence, Isaiah says, and then Judah will be a terror to them. Not militarily, not because they're going to go attack, but because they're going to recognize that it is the God of the Jews who is doing this to them. So that Judah even becomes a terror to them. And all of that, I say again, is for the purpose of showing that he is the only God who actually is. So we have to add that to our overall theology, our overall understanding of who God is, what God is like, what God does. Again, we oftentimes think of God only in positive terms, and when we think of his revelation of himself, we oftentimes think of it in positive ways, and we think that the negative stuff that happens in this life is either an aberration or it's the devil. But we very seldom say, this is God doing this. The evidence from the Bible is, regardless of what happens, it is God who is doing it. He may use Satan as his foot soldier to accomplish it, but it's always God that does it. So God is going to say this again when we get to Ezekiel, if we get there tonight. He's going to say, this is day of the Lord stuff. This is God doing this. This is God bringing down the armies of Nebuchadnezzar on the Egyptians. This is God using the armies of the earth, using human agency in order to accomplish his judgment against his people. And so that carries also into our eschatology, our understanding of the time of trouble that, that is such as never was or ever would be again. That time of trouble includes a character that we've been talking about on Sundays, the Antichrist, the little horn. And so it is sometimes easy to think, well, that's, that's a political thing that's going to happen. or that's. But God, throughout all of human history, says whenever a kingdom attacks a kingdom, that's me utilizing that kingdom as a battering ram in order to correct the other kingdom. And then I'll turn around and punish the kingdom that attacked the other kingdom for the haughtiness with which they attacked the kingdom because God is always in control and that also informs our eschatology. That eschatologically, that time of trouble, that time of tribulation, that great tribulation to come is a time of God's judgment against specifically Israel, which is why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. So the kingdoms of the earth, the ten-toed kingdoms, are going to gather together in their loose confederation to attack the beautiful land, to attack Jerusalem, but it's God's punishment against Jerusalem, even though he's using human agencies to accomplish it. And you see that all the way back here in Isaiah. Okay, so that was all introduction. The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud, and he is about to come to Egypt. So he's been to Ethiopia. He's been to Cush. We've already prophesied about Damascus. We've already seen the Arameans and the destruction. But the reason that we are seeing these punishments in this order is because as Assyria was rising and conquering the regions around them, the Israelites were looking to make deals. 
And a couple of the deals that they made were with the Arameans and with the Egyptians in order to find some kind of coalition that would protect them against the Assyrians. And so God is demonstrating that if he is out to punish you, if he is going to exercise his sovereign will in order to accomplish your correction, there's no human agency that can help you. You can make all the deals in the world with all the human armies and all the powers of the planet, and they're not going to be able to protect you because God is just as capable of taking them down as he is of taking you down. So that, again, is another element of why God says, this is how I'm demonstrating myself, so that they are going to know that I am God and I am the only God. Now, the Baal of Egypt in mythology, in Egyptian mythology, is oftentimes represented as riding on a chariot of clouds. So it's no mistake that the beginning of the oracle against Egypt would be that the Lord, Yahweh, the real God, is riding on a swift cloud. He's on his chariot of clouds. In other words, demonstrating that he actually does what the mythological gods and Baals claim to do. And then while he's out there riding on his swift cloud and conquering these various nations, he's coming to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. You know, when God's people, Israel, were growing up, becoming a nation, becoming a great number of people in Egypt during the 400 years of Egyptian captivity, during that time and toward the end of that time, God brought 10 plagues on Egypt. And if you go back and you look at the particular plagues, you can see that one by one, God was mocking the various gods of Egypt. They, they had a frog god. And so God makes an abundance of frogs and essentially says, okay, go beg your frog god to deliver you. He can't help you. There's a god of the insects, so God brings lice. And there's a god of the Nile. And so he makes the Nile into blood. One by one, God is just setting them up and knocking them down. Mm. Same thing here. The idols of Egypt, they're nothing. All the various gods who are nothing compared to Yahweh, the real God, the idols of Egypt are nothing. They're going to, they're, they are characterized as trembling at his presence because he is utterly superior to all of them because he is and they is not. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So God is going to bring about such a level of condemnation, judgment, and even panic on Egypt that the very people of Egypt are going to melt away in their heart. They're going to become uh, incensed. They're going to become angry, and then they're going to become panicky. And they're going to run to their gods. They're going to run to their idols. They're going to pray to their idols who are incapable of helping them against the only God who is. Verse 2. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians. As their hearts are melting, as they're panicking, as they're desperate for food, they're going to go fight the other Egyptians for food. God is going to make them fight against themselves, brother against brother. And they will each fight against his brother 
and each one will fight against his neighbor. City against city, kingdom against kingdom. God is going to bring about pandemonium. Now we're talking about a God who is not of confusion. And as a consequence, whenever we see this kind of pandemonium in the world, whenever the world seems to be particularly crazy, you know, like now, when you see that in the world, it's easy to think, well, where is God in this? Here's God demonstrating yet again before it happens, I'm going to bring about pandemonium. I'm going to bring about the kind of trouble where men's hearts are going to melt within them to the degree that they're willing to kill each other and fight with each other desperate for any kind of food or any kind of drink. They're going to fight against their neighbors, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them. They're all going to be depressed. And it's God who is going to bring about that demoralization. Now, remember, you're talking about a people who once upon a time prided themselves in their wisdom, in their great libraries, in their great wisdom and philosophy, in their great ability to build things, in their ability to create these great edifices to their own glory and their own grandeur. And God says, I'm going to take away that pride out of them and I'm going to demoralize them completely and I will confound their strategy so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and mediums and spiritists. They're going to be so desperate, they're going to run to anyone and anything in the hope of finding some kind of shelter from the God who is punishing them. Notice also that God does not say, I'm going to give them the spirit so that they run to me. Instead, he says, I'm going to give them the spirit of demoralization. I'm going to confound them in their strategy. The same way that Paul says that when the Antichrist is on the planet, that the reason people are going to follow after him and take the mark is because God is going to send them a spirit of delusion so that they will believe the lie and be condemned. So whether Old Testament or New, you have demonstrations of God bringing about condemnation and confusion within people so that they will resort to empty idols and to ghosts of the dead and to mediums and to spiritists so that God can condemn them. That's a really, really sovereign God. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master. A mighty king will rule over them. Chances are, by the way, that cruel one that he's referring to here is uh, the same one who you see at the beginning of chapter 20, Sargon, the king of Assyria, who is going to fight against Ashdod and capture it and then turn against Egypt. He's mentioned by name in chapter 20, so it's a pretty good indication that that's who Isaiah is talking about in this prophecy when God says, I'm going to deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master. The fact that he is cruel doesn't change the fact that God is going to deliver the Egyptians up in their pride and turn them over to a mighty king who is going to rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts, very important designation at that moment, the God of hosts. 
Lord God Sabaoth, the one who's in charge of the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth and who can do whatever he wants and nobody can stop his hand and nobody can say, what are you doing? That particular name is the name that Isaiah wanted to make sure to use to say, now when God does this, when he brings about this kind of punishment on the Egyptians and then turns them over to Sargon and the Assyrians, he can do it because he is, after all, the God of everybody. He's the God of hosts, which is why he can judge even the Gentiles who didn't have the advantage of the revelation of God to them because he is the Lord of everybody. Then he's going to bring about drought, starting in verse 5. You're going to see that he's going to change the topography, the geography, the geology, one of those three words. There in Egypt, this is something that only God could do. Nobody's going to be able to dry up the sea and the river Nile until it's parched and dry. Now, what you have to understand about the river Nile, if you look at any map of Egypt, you recognize that the River Nile is important to every aspect of their life. Not only do they use it for shipping goods to various areas. Historically, if you're looking at ancient Egypt, it was referred to as Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. And then to add to the confusion, Upper Egypt was south and Lower Egypt was north because it was actually physically lower because that's where the tributaries of the Nile all settled, the Fertile Crescent, all that stuff, as it moved its way into the Mediterranean Sea. As you go further inland, the land level rises, and those areas were dependent on the fertile areas to send them food, but those areas would manufacture and cut stone and all that stuff. They would transport it via the Nile. The bulrushes, the reeds that they used to make pretty much everything, grew up along the banks of the Nile. If there was no water in the Nile, you couldn't grow it. The fabrics that they would make were dependent on the Nile to water them, to grow them up. And then, of course, it's a source of water, so it's a source of food for everything. So when God says, I'm going to dry up the Nile, the Egyptians have a god of the Nile, who they worship, who they pray to, God's going to dry up the Nile, and there's nothing their God can do about it. It's yet again God showing off that he is the only God. The waters from the sea will dry up, and the river, that would be the Nile, becomes parched and dry. And the canals, the tributaries off the Nile, which would go and water the various different areas so they could grow, those are going to stink. They will emit a stench and the streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up so you've gone from the river itself to the tributaries to the canals to the streams smaller 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 all the way down along the line God says I'm going to dry them all up the consequences are going to be that the reeds and the rushes are going to rot away the bulrushes by the Nile by the edge of the Nile and all the sown fields by the Nile will become dry and be driven away and be no more. So God is going to bring about drought. And he can do that and he can crash their economy and he can make them desperate to the point where they're willing to kill each other. And all he has to do is block up the Nile. 
All he has to do is not send sufficient rain because the Nile flows from Upper Egypt down into Lower Egypt, down into the Mediterranean. So it is dependent on rain to keep that water flowing. All God has to do is cut off the rain and everything tanks. Verse 8, and the fishermen will lament. And all those who cast a line into the Nile are going to mourn. Moreover, the manufacturers of linen made from combed flax and the weavers of white cloth will be utterly dejected. So he's destroying every aspect of their economy. The fishermen aren't going to be able to fish because the water is going to become putrid. The bulrushes that they use to manufacture so many different things, including the boats that they oftentimes would use, at least the rafts, that's all going to dry up. And those who manufacture cloth and linen from the combed flax, the flax is going to dry up. So they're all going to be destroyed. The pillars of Egypt will be crushed so that all the hired laborers will be grieved in soul. So he's going to take down the pillars. That probably is a reference to the high and mighty. That the high and mighty are going to suffer the same way that the laborers, the common laborers, are going to, are going to grieve and are going to have to find food and find water. Once there is no more food and no more water, once there is a, a drought that covers the whole area, it doesn't matter how much gold you have. You can't eat or drink your gold and so God is saying the rich are going to suffer the same way that the poor is going to suffer. The pillars of Egypt are going to be crushed. All the hired laborers are going to be grieved in soul. The princes of Zoan are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. At one point, Zoan was the capital of Egypt. Uh, later, it moved to Memphis which is in Tennessee here. You can, you can go. In fact, if you're driving through Memphis, the first thing you're going to notice is this great big pyramid. Why did they build a great big pyramid in Memphis, Tennessee? Well, because of the connection. The name Memphis comes from Egypt. So they're just recognizing their namesake. The princes of the capital, Zoan, are now fools. Because no matter what advice they give, no matter what ideas they come up with, they can't stop the widespread destruction. They can't come up with a plan. And that is why God is overturning all their plans. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors, the best advice they've got, the best they can come up with is foolishness. The NASB says, is stupid. They become stupid. At one time, they marveled in their own wisdom. And they advised Pharaoh, and they gave him tremendous advice on how to run the economy and how to keep everything moving and keep the food distributed. And, and now they got nothing. Why? Because the God that no human being can overcome or overthrow is bringing about this destruction. He's bringing about this punishment, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Notice God started out by saying, your idols are no help to you. Now he's saying, your wise men are no help to you. Because if God is going to punish you, 
There's no human agency that can stop that because sovereign God is going to do what sovereign God wants to do. How can you men say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise. I am a son of ancient kings. How can you go say that to him considering that you're stupid, that that you can't do anything about it? That you can't change the course of history that is happening right in front of you and you can't solve the dilemma. You may brag and say, yes, Pharaoh, you should listen to me and listen to my advice because after all, I'm a son of the wise. I'm a son of ancient kings. God is essentially saying, so what? You're nothing. Once I go after you, there's nothing you can do. Verse 12, well then, where are your wise men? That is God being sarcastic. And I keep saying, that's one of my more God-like qualities. <laughs> Did you buy that? It was just sarcasm on my part. Did you? Okay. Well, then, where are your wise men? Please let them tell you. And let them understand what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. In other words, if they're giving you any other advice except this is the work of Yahweh. You better go worship him. You better cry out to him. If they're telling you anything else, if they're sending you to any of the pantheon of Egyptian gods, if they're giving you any other advice, they're not wise. So then your wise men have become stupid. Where are your wise men? Please let them tell you and let them understand what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have acted foolishly. I told you that was the capital and then it moved to Memphis. So the next phrase is, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the very cornerstones of her tribe. So what does a cornerstone do? Jesus referred to himself as the cornerstone. So what does a cornerstone do? Supports the whole rest of the structure. Exactly right. I didn't expect my son to be the one that came up with that. I expected it to be Leon, and he was there. (laughs) But the whole structure is built on the cornerstone. So now God is referring to the wise men of Egypt as cornerstones of their tribes. The whole rest of their tribe is built on the wisdom of these men. And yet, those men, those cornerstones, have led Egypt away. Those capital cities that are supposed to know what's going on, the governments of those capital cities that are supposed to keep the economy going and the people fed have become a destruction. They have led Egypt astray. How? By leading them to all these pantheon of gods, leading them to these idols, leading them into the worship of everything that is not Yahweh. And in that way, they have led the people astray. So the Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. Notice the Lord did that. Yahweh, the one who said a moment ago that he was going to bring confusion to them. He is the one who has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. They have led Egypt astray in all that it does. So like a drunken man staggers in his vomit, God is very graphic. There will be no work for Egypt, which its head or its tail 
its palm branch or its bulrush may do. All that means is from top to bottom, from end to end, wall to wall. The Egyptians are going to be led astray. They're going to stagger from hunger and thirst so that they're like drunken men. And there's going to be no work for them. There's nothing they can do to accomplish more food, more water, more money. In that day, there's that phrase again, in that day. How often have we seen that in the book of Isaiah, in that day? Usually when we see the phrase in that day, suddenly the prophecy takes a leap from the immediate occurrences that are about to happen into the eschatological end. And that's what happens here. Because now what's going to be described is not something that we can trace back to the Assyrians. It's not something that we can go back and say that the Chaldeans did, the Babylonians did. Instead, it is stuff that has to be end-of-time type stuff. It is also the accomplishment of the purpose of God. Why did I tell you the purpose was for God pouring out all these judgments on the Egyptians? What is his end purpose of it? So that they'll know he is God. And because God always accomplishes his purpose, the rest of this prophecy is that the Egyptians and the Assyrians are going to come to know God. Now that hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. Certainly God has chosen some Egyptians. Certainly God has chosen some Assyrians, but he has also scattered them. And that's what he's about to say he's going to scatter them and then he's going to call them to himself and then he's going to establish them and they are going to come to worship him. Verse 16. In that day, the Egyptians will become like women and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he is going to wave over them. It's all it takes is a wave of God's hand. And suddenly everything's going to go bad for them. And the land of Judah will become a terror in Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. I mentioned to you in my introductory comments that eventually even Judah was going to become a terror to Egypt. And I said not because they have this military might, not because they're going to attack them, but because it is the God of Judah. It is the God who is worshipped in Judah, who they are going to recognize as the one who is bringing this about to the point where they just want to know nothing about it. Don't even mention him. Don't even, he's a terror to us. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it. Because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan. That would be Hebrew. And swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One will be called. Now the NASB says that it's called the city of destruction. The meaning of that phrase, the city of destruction, if you look at it in the Hebrew, it's caused a lot of debate through the years. The Dead Sea Scrolls and the Vulgate render it more as the city of the sun, 
which actually makes more sense because the sun god, Ra, was the chief among the gods of Egypt. And they actually had a city of the sun. It's called the Heliopolis. That word Helios has come down to us to this day in reference to the sun. And so it may be that what God is saying here is even the city dedicated to the chief god of Egypt is going to come worship Yahweh, the real God. There are going to be five cities in the land of Egypt that will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of them will be called the Heliopolis or the city of the sun. City of destruction is a, an interesting translation. Verse 19, in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. Hasn't happened. That's why we can say the first part of this chapter has been accomplished in the Assyrians coming down and conquering Egypt, followed up by the Babylonians coming down under Nebuchadnezzar and conquering Egypt. Egypt went through a long period of destructive kings coming and invading them. But the end result of the cities of Egypt also worshiping God, speaking the language of the Canaanites, swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts, setting up an altar in the midst of the land of Egypt, having a pillar to God near its border, that has not happened yet, but it has to happen as sure as the first part of the chapter actually happened. The last part of the chapter has to happen. And we, right now, us, you and me, all of us collectively right now, we are living in that period of time between what God has done in Egypt and what God is going to do in Egypt. And he's telling you right here what he's going to do. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border, and it will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of their oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion and will deliver them. Suddenly it got all Christological on us. Suddenly there's going to be Christianity in Egypt. So we could say, yes, at this moment, Christianity does exist in Egypt. Pockets of Christianity. But there is not an altar to Yahweh. There is not that pillar. They are not speaking the language of Canaan. And they are not swearing allegiance to the Lord yet as a nation, as a national entity. But did God send them a savior? Did he send them a champion? Did Christianity begin now in Egypt? All of that is true. So that is more evidence that the parts that haven't happened are going to happen. Because elements of this prophecy have already happened. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of their oppressors. That's why God is bringing the oppressors on them so that they will cry to the Lord. Once they get desperate enough and none of their gods can help them and none of their wise men can help them and none of their governors and none of their leaders can help them, they're going to cry to the Lord because of their oppressors and that was God's purpose from the beginning. And he's going to accomplish that through trouble. 
through difficulty, through famine, through hunger, through people fighting against each other, through bloodshed. He's going to accomplish the end result that he set out to accomplish, which is that they are going to turn to him, and he's going to send them a savior and a champion, and he, that savior and champion, will deliver them. Thus, verse 21, thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. If that language sounds very familiar, it's because in the New Covenant, in Jeremiah 31, what we read is within Judah and Israel, no man is going to have to say to his brother or no man is going to have to teach his neighbor saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the greatest to the least of them. Okay, so that's a promise that at some point the knowledge of the Lord is going to be universal in Israel and Judah. Now, God says, as a result of everything, he's going to take Egypt through that the Egyptians will know the Lord, there's the phrase again, in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. We've seen that time and time again. God said he was going to strike Israel until there was no soundness in them, until they were sick throughout. From the top of the head to the soles of their feet, they were going to be sick, and then Christ was going to die, and by his stripes we are healed. Now God is saying the same thing concerning Egypt. I'm going to strike them. I'm going to strike them in a cruel way. It's going to go bad for them but I'm also going to be the one that heals them. And in between the striking and the healing, guess what gets accomplished? They come to the Lord. They recognize who God really is. They worship God. And that was the purpose for which God brought them through it to begin with. Now, by the way, this whole scenario that we just read in this chapter is stretched over thousands of years now because the Assyrian captivity is back 700 and in fact chapter 20 verse 1 says in the year that the commander came to Ashdod when Sargon the king of Assyria sent him and he fought against Ashdod and captured it that's a time stamp and that would have been 711 BC so now we get some sense of when God is saying now I'm going to conquer Egypt and I'm going to wipe Egypt out and I'm going to scatter Egypt, and I'm going to sustain Egypt, and then I'm going to restore Egypt, and I'm going to send them a savior, and I'm going to send them a deliverer, and then they're going to worship me. All of that, that whole scenario, is human history. And it's still God just laying out exactly what he's going to do. But he does it through the course of human history. So when we see these small motions, these small glitches, in time during generations during a decade or even over a hundred years that's not the whole expanse of human history that's just God working out his sovereign plan driving everything inexorably toward his purposed end the Lord will make himself known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and they will even worship with sacrifice and offering and they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it and the Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. 
So they will return to the Lord and he will respond to them and he will heal them. And in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians will come into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. So God just said, now they're enemies. At the moment, they're complete enemies. At the moment, Assyria is going to completely wipe out Egypt and it's going to be awful. But someday, when the Prince of Princes is ruling from Jerusalem and nothing's going to hurt nor harm in all my holy mountain, we've already read that, at that time, there's going to be a highway of commerce going from Assyria to Egypt and they're going to apparently be friends and brothers and they're going to worship together the Egyptians worshiping together with the Assyrians. So what is going to unite them? Their common recognition of who God really is is going to be the unifying factor between these ancient enemies. It's one of the reasons that I say hasn't happened yet. In that day, says verse 24, Israel will be the third party along with Egypt and Assyria. They will be a blessing in the midst of the earth. So Egypt, Assyria, and then Israel. God says they as a people group collectively there in the Middle East are going to be a blessing to the whole earth. Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. Hasn't happened yet. Has to happen. And the way that God is going to unite the Israelites, who are currently rebellious, who, as Isaiah is saying this, they are preparing to go into the Assyrian captivity and never get back to their land until God unites them, calls them out from all four corners of the world, delivers them back to their land. Egypt is enemy. Egypt is making all kinds of deals with Israel for the purpose of enriching themselves. And, of course, they are incapable of stopping the hand of God when God decides to pour out punishment. And Assyria is going to conquer the whole Middle East. And then Babylon's going to conquer them. And as we already read in chapter 10, when Assyria conquers Israel, God says, that's me. I'm doing that. I'm using Assyria to punish my people. And then I'm going to punish Assyria for the way that they punished my people. So God is the prime mover. He is the purpose behind all of this. He is the planner. He is the architect. And he is the one empowering every bit of this to the purpose of worship toward him by this people group. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Chapter 20 is very short. We're just going to read it, and then we'll be done for the evening. 
but it really should be the continuation of chapter 19. It's the exact same topic. Nothing has changed outside of the fact that it is a vision that comes a little later, but it has the exact same subject matter. In the year that the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him and he fought against Ashdod and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from off your hips. The fact that he walked around wearing sackcloth means he dressed like Elijah dressed. He was not dressed in fine clothing. But loosen that sackcloth from around your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so going naked and barefoot. Now, I happen to read a commentary just today about that particular verse saying, while it is true that he lost his outer garment and his shoes, he was not completely naked. They did not explain why he was not completely naked. But what you're going to see down here is God is going to say that this is a demonstration of how the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered, are the shame of Egypt. So if that's what Isaiah is demonstrating, sounds to me like he really wasn't wearing much of anything. But it's okay. He only went like that for three years. Three years walking around naked. Boy, you better be an accurate prophet. (laughs) If you're walking around telling people, oh yeah, I speak for God. I'm just not wearing clothing. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and as a token against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. And then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and Egypt, their boast. Once upon a time, they thought, There was no other kingdom on the planet like them. Their great architecture, their great libraries, their great wisdom. And God's going to bring them down to utter and complete shame until the Assyrians are leading them back into captivity, wearing no shoes, no clothes, so they're fully exposed to their shame. That is what God is going to do. Take their pride and utterly abase them that they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and Egypt their boast. So the inhabitants of the coastland will say in that day, Behold, such is our hope, where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and we, how shall we escape? Okay, I began tonight by telling you that the Israelites had made deals with the Egyptians, with those of Cush, with the Arameans, because they were trying to find protection from the Assyrians. We know the end of the story, which is the Assyrians conquered the Israelites, took them into captivity, took them out of their land. But the whole reason that God is going to do this to Cush and Egypt and utterly 
cause that level of dismay and embarrassment for them is so that his people, Israel, are going to look on Egypt and Cush and how they have been completely debased and say, there goes our last hope. What hope do we have? How are we going to be delivered from Assyria if Assyria has now conquered them? So the inhabitants of this coastland will say to that, will say in that day, behold, such is our hope. Just like that. That's what's going to happen to us. Where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? So once again, God is demonstrating that he is going to utterly take responsibility. And by his utter sovereignty, he is going to accomplish the punishment and the judgment of his people and the Gentile people and all people who do not worship him and those people who he intends, he's also going to heal and draw back to himself and make a blessing to the whole rest of the world. All that is is sovereign, 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 sovereign. Even though Isaiah never lays out the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty, it's right there in the text. Any questions about that? occurs to me that all of the things that God accomplishes for his people through the ages came about as one who was just as shamed hung naked on a cross not not with uh, something around his waist like you always see in the paintings and the pictures and the movies he hung there in full view of everyone And that was prefigured and typified all the way back at the snake on the pole, Mm -hmm. the essence of sin, that he became sin for us so that we could become his righteousness. And yeah, that he would take the, the utter degradation and debasement and embarrassment of sin, take it all on himself and be publicly humiliated and then rise up to the right hand of God so that he can bring his people to himself. It's pretty astounding stuff. Good observation, though. Anything else? All right, then. If you have no other questions, say good night to the Internet congregation. Good night. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us again each week when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.